the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we're convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. We're in a series called Compelled by Love, and so for the, for the fall, we've been going through kind of what does it mean to be a community of faith that follows Jesus and to a city like Portland and actually lives this gospel out that would be bold enough to be uh, seeking Jesus and compelled by his love for us, but that we would also be the sent people of God that would go into our city and display and announce his love. Um, What does it mean for us to do that in a post-Christian, post-everything kind of context? And today I want to talk about the resurrection. It's interesting when we get in a conversation, and I get in these conversations all the time, and perhaps you do too. And they're conversations that may be with someone who is a skeptic, or it may be someone who's here at Imago and just wrestling with what they believe about Jesus Christ. And the conversation can go towards any direction, It could be questions about if God is good, then why does he allow bad things to happen? It could be a question that has to do with if God is all-powerful, then how am I really free to make decisions? And the questions are sort of endless in terms of whatever we can come up with or what we create and, and, and I ask myself in those moments, what do we say? Because I don't know that we're ever going to have all the answers. Otherwise, we wouldn't have to walk by faith. However, time and time again, when I ask the question, what do you do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The, it's not that the table turns or I'm trying to win some kind of argument. But... But it begs this question that isn't simply ours to defend. But if it was a historical reality that Jesus Christ rose bodily, physically from the dead, then that's something the whole world has to sort of wrestle with. And I wonder as we have these beautiful kids up here and we're in the midst of fall and there's all these signs of life and signs of new life. Will they be able to say that I grew up in a community that that sort of was unhooked from so much of what burdens us in the world because they believed that this radical thing happened 2,000 years ago. This mind-blowing event took place where the Son of God who was crucified on a cross, buried in a tomb, three days later conquered death. He ascended to heaven and he's alive today. And he is the firstborn of all he will raise in him. And that there was something so powerful about that that it unhooked them to live a different life. What will they say of us in that regard? Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. If you have a Bible, uh, there's one in the pew there. 
And I want us to look at this passage that comes um, right at the end of the Gospel of Matthew in terms of the resurrection. And it says that after the Sabbath, on the first day of the week, that Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And in verse 5, it says, there was an angel. And the angel said to the woman, don't be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you'll see him. Now I have told you. And so the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell his disciples, and suddenly Jesus met them, Greetings, he said. They came to him and they clasped his feet and they worshiped him. And then Jesus said, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. The resurrection that is encountered by these two women captures sort of this series that we're in. The angel says, come and see, not Jesus but the empty tomb. And then go and tell his disciples and on the way they see a physical appearance of Jesus. And it's very, very important that we understand resurrection is both of those. It is an empty tomb and witnesses who saw a physical resurrected Jesus. If you have one without the other, you you really can explain it away. So if I just have an empty tomb, you can say, well, somebody stole the body. If I just have people that say, well, I I think I've seen Jesus, then you can go back to the tomb and go, well, it looks like he's still there. So either way, if you don't have both of those, you don't have this historical account of resurrection. But why does it matter to us? I mean, why does it matter that that you and I would, would sort of believe this? I think for a lot of people today, both inside and outside the church, it all comes back to what I want to believe. And if what I want to believe is that Jesus rose from the dead, then it really doesn't matter if he did that literally, physically, metaphorically, as long as it makes me a better person or draws me closer to God. In conversations I have with people who who aren't followers of Jesus, it's sort of like, There's a beauty to the story of a a, a Jesus who would die on the cross for us. They, They like that. They don't like the fact that he would claim to be God. And they could scoff or think it's sort of ridiculous that he rose from the dead. We live in a culture that where we believe what we want to believe. And so in that kind of culture, it's very, it can make you feel kind of insecure going, I'm going to go tell people this. Like, we're going to sit down and go, well, I believe in in God who became man, who died on the cross, and then he rose again. That's ridiculous. Like, you understand that, right, as a Christian? That's a ridiculous claim. So so they probably shouldn't go totally. That makes sense. I know a guy uh, who lived on my block, died, rose again last week. So... (laughs) It's not like that sort of thing happens all the time. And and yet in that moment, what was it that this early church 
was so fueled by, empowered by, that they went and told and, and, and suffered great lengths to tell that story. And how do you and I not only embrace it for hope, but why does it matter at all? Why can't we just make it up or believe what we want? Well, in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church about resurrection. And for Paul, it wasn't a relativistic thing. It wasn't a metaphorical thing. It wasn't a nice way to cap off a story about Jesus the Messiah. It, everything within Christianity for Paul hinged on the fact that he literally, Jesus Christ literally rose from the dead on the third day. So here's what he says in verse 12. Because some within the church, just like the church today, would deny a physical resurrection. He says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had where someone is just asking lots of questions about about faith and God and the Bible and Jesus. And, And I come to this point, I come to the point of saying, if this isn't true, I'm wasting my life. And and they look at me and they're sort of shocked. They're like, No, you're not. You're you're doing good works, you're pastoring people, you care for people. I'm like, no, I bet on the wrong horse. This is a horrible job if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Like, this is the worst case scenario. We get to play fantasy football every week together and go, oh yeah, I won. No, you didn't. You don't own that team, it's not real. And Paul says very clearly, if Jesus hasn't raised, then our preaching and our faith is useless. That all Christians are false witnesses about God. That we're still in our sins. That we've never been forgiven. And that if it's only for this life, we're of all people most to be pitied. Everything comes back to this doctrine in Christianity. It is the central doctrine upon which everything rises or falls. And so it matters what you believe about it because everything hinges on it. But what matters more than if you believe it is if it did happen or not. Because believing it doesn't make it true. But not believing it doesn't make it a lie. See, I think for most of us, we want to debate all kinds of issues. 
about who Jesus was or what the Bible's about or whatever those things are. But the truth is, it doesn't matter what you think about Jesus or what I think about Jesus or what anybody out in the world thinks about Jesus. If he didn't rise from the dead, it doesn't matter, right? But if he did raise from the dead, then everything he said was true. Then it matters a whole lot what we do with him. But it is not a subjective, emotional, kind of mystical thing. It is a literal historical fact, or it isn't. And there's no need to sit around and ask each other how we feel about it. If it happened, then everything he said was true. And the way we live and the worldview that we see and engage the world with should be radically altered by the person of Christ. So let's talk about some objections. Um, objections that we encounter when we're just in dialogue or objections that we feel. But, but one of them, and sort of a major one, is that the typical argument goes something like, people back then, this is pre-kind of technology revolution, scientific revolution, people that back then just believed stuff like that. Like they, they were, um, they believed in, ghosts and goblins and witches and superstition and all of those things. And so this is just another one of those things that gets thrown into the category. Like today in Portland, Oregon, 2013, this is a ridiculous claim. But back then in a Greco-Roman world, it would have been, it would have been a plausible claim. And, and, and what C.S. Lewis says about that is that there is this sort of intellectual snobbery to everyone's cultural moment. Like we're the geniuses and everybody back then was stupid. But if you trace the history books, everyone who died stayed dead back then too, right? <laughs> like people weren't going, yeah, five, you know, some people die, some people keep coming to life, it's weird. <laughs> like it has always been the dead people stayed dead. And that didn't change in the Greco-Roman world. But it's even bigger than that. So if we went into the Greco-Roman world today and we were sitting at a pub with some kind of you know, centurion soldier, and, and what would his questions be about resurrection, a physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? First of all, he wouldn't think that was a good thing because they believed that the body and all things material were evil and they were breaking and they were fading away and that true spiritual freedom would be when we are liberated from the body and we're no longer contained by the material. And so it wasn't like they were sitting around hoping that some doctrine like this would come along. It would have been ridiculous to them and perhaps uh, not even desirable. If, you were, if we were sitting around at a, a different place with a, sort of a Jewish believer in the Old Testament... They would have never thought that a single resurrection, that, that the Messiah raising from the dead all by himself and not restoring or fulfilling all things was even plausible. Because while the Old Testament believed that the body and spirit were both good and that resurrection was a good thing, they understood it to be at the end of time that all would raise the dead and faith would raise and all would be kind of consummated and fulfilled and restored. And so having that happen in history 
in, in a way that it did would have not have been plausible or acceptable. It would have been no more, it, it would be just as improbable in that day to make this claim as it is in our day. Because dead people have stayed dead for all of history. So the great thing about the doctrine of resurrection, if you're ever in one of these conversations, is that while it feels like the burden of proof is on us, on someone who believes it, the truth is the burden of proof is as much on them as it is on us. It's very difficult for us to prove that Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead. But there are some proofs that if you don't believe it, then you have to give answer to. And one of the major proofs were the witnesses. Again, we have an empty tomb, and we have people who say that they have seen the resurrected Christ. So in chapter 15, the same chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about these witnesses in verse 3 of chapter 15. He says, For what I received I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, that's to get historical fact and implication into the gospel message, according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, Paul is writing 1 Corinthians about 15 years after the resurrection. So he's essentially saying there are 500 plus people who have seen the risen Christ and they're here. They're still alive. Most of them are still alive. So that has major implications if you could say, if you could bend in that conversation at the pub and said, actually, you should go see Bob. He saw him. He's just around the corner. And there are whole other, tons of other people who physically saw him. In a court of law, the 500 plus witnesses would, would carry a lot of weight as to whether something was true or not. You have... The witnesses, and how do you explain the witnesses? Now, some people will go to great lengths. They would say, well, well, they all got together and they sort of secured the story. They said, hey, here's our story. We're going to stick to it. Now, we know for thousands of years that those kind of stories usually don't stick. But what's really interesting is that in all accounts of the gospel, the first people at the tomb are the women. And the women are the ones who would, who would tell the story and tell the disciples. And in the culture of the day that they were writing, a woman's testimony, because of its hierarchicalness in that culture, would not have been regarded as, as valid or as valid as a man's. And it's just to say that, that the truth of the story isn't that they made it to look like it would have a lot of power to it. If you came up with it on your own, you wouldn't have put the women at the tomb first. You just wouldn't have. Because you've already created tension. Which is what's great about Jesus, because he seemed to do that everywhere he went. So why not at his resurrection? 
So you have to answer to that. Why would they start the story there? How do you explain these witnesses? And all you really had to do to shut them up, I mean, Christianity is the easiest thing to silence. Just find the body, right? Most most people can find the body. Yeah, they might bury it somewhere, but if you go, if somebody steals a body and then sticks it somewhere where no one can find it, you rarely have a bunch of people saying, hey, I've seen that guy, because you hid the body. How do you explain the witness? How do you explain the rise of the early church? See, there were, there were many messianic revolutions in the day because you have Rome that sort of occupies and you have the, the Israeli, the Jewish people of God who are under occupation. And so you would have these sort of zealous, charismatic, messianic rulers they would, or, or false messiahs. They would raise up and they would claim a new kingdom and they would preach against Rome and they would gather disciples and they would, they would try to start this revolution. History declares that that's a fact. But what's true, according to N.T. Wright and other scholars, is that there, there was an end game to that. And the end game was when that quote-unquote Messiah was crucified. And as soon as that person died, all of the followers had two choices. Do we try to find another follower or do we give up the revolution? There is no case in which after the death of their leader did those revolutions actually gain momentum, except in the rise of the early church. In the rise of the early church, you have uh, very timid, scarce disciples who hide from all the leaders at the crucifixion, and then somehow they gain this sense of... um, courage and boldness and they began to preach that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead that a new day has dawned there is a new creation that's breaking into the old and people began to believe this and they continued to believe it and then they continued to be persecuted for it and suffer for it how do you explain this new band of followers that found courage out of nowhere and would would it be fathomable that they all got together and said let's base this on a lie like let's give up our lives our livelihood our property let's do all of that just so that we don't lose face about the fact that Jesus wasn't who he said he was highly improbable Maybe you get a couple people to do that. You're probably not going to get hundreds and hundreds and thousands of them to. Right? So how do you explain the rise of the early church? And second, lastly, just the third easy question where the burden of proof isn't only on followers of Jesus. Is how do you explain the death of the leaders? Like, the death of the leaders where I've heard other people compare it to uh, a sort of a Islamic fundamentalism, like terrorism or something like that, where lots of people are dying for things they believe in. But this is very different, right? This isn't the 12 apostles hiding somewhere and sending out people to do their bidding. This isn't people who are 
who are acting in violence or power. But these are leaders who, in the face of military might and power and oppression and persecution, won't shut up about the fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. How do you explain that? Blaise Pascal says, I tend to trust the witnesses that will take a knife to the throat. Right? Meaning there's something about someone who is willing to continue in the face of, of, of loss of life, in the face of death, to testify. And even in those moments of persecution, they would pray for their forgiveness. Right? They would still embody the spirit of this, this Messiah who had risen from the dead. The Apostle Paul The reason why he's saying, listen, if this isn't true, I've wasted my life, everything's over. Because the apostle Paul, his back was full of scars where he had been beaten to the point of death several times. On different occasions, he had been taken out of the city and stoned almost to death. Not Portland stone, but like Old Testament stone. (laughs) And, and, And you know what he did? When, when he came to, he got up and went back into the city and started to preach it again. Like, how do you explain people who aren't tied together through internet, aren't, aren't linked together through some kind of cell group conspiracy, but these are people who on their own are going into different cultures and contexts and they're preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the face of power and they're willing to give their lives up for it. You have to answer for that. And to, and to think that they would do that because they made up a story and they were sticking to it is, is pretty much unbelievable. So when we go and tell and we have these conversations, the burden isn't only on us. And, and the beautiful thing is, is for many people in today's context, culture, I think we tend to go, do I feel like God loves me? Do I feel like this is true? Do I feel like... And I'm here to tell you that what's beautiful about Christianity is despite how you feel in a given moment, at the center of it is our Messiah King who was crucified for sin and who overcame the grave through resurrection. And he has ascended into heaven where today there is a glorified man in heaven, the first fruits of the dead, and he has promised to take you with him when he restores all things. And at the center of what we believe, it is not so dependent upon how you feel about it. What matters is, did he raise from the dead or not? And if he did, then everything he said was true. And at that point, we have a real king to follow. We have the one who could say, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And there's a lot of hope in following that man because he is the son of God. He is the resurrected one. And so finally, I would just say this for us. This doctrine of resurrection, as we go and tell, 
is a doctrine of hope, right? It's a doctrine of hope that, that Jesus has defeated death, his death and your death. It's a doctrine of hope in that he promises to raise you with him. It's a doctrine of hope that in a world with lots of dark clouds, clouds of cancer, clouds of tragedy, uh, clouds that threaten life, there's an empty tomb and there's a risen Christ who has promised that his new creation life that's showing up in pieces now will come in its fullness. It's a doctrine of hope that what we do with our lives today in, in pursuing justice and loving mercy and telling people in boldness that there is hope because Jesus has risen from the dead. What you do today matters and lives on into eternity. That our life is not meaningless or just for our moment. And so we have this announcement given to us to go and tell that Jesus Christ is no longer dead, that the tomb is empty, and that he reigns now for us. There's a lot of hope there. And so today as you come to this table, I invite you to come down. Come down to participate in bread and wine, but bread and wine that is secured, that your, his body was broken and his blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins, which was which was sort of stamped and approved by the power of his resurrection. There'll be people at these doors for you here today to pray resurrection hope with you. Whatever you're going through or wherever you're at, or maybe you're at that place where you're, you've been a skeptic and you're ready to put your faith in Christ. Wherever we are today, we come with great hope that we have been found by Jesus who is alive today and reigning. And we get to announce that and live out that kind of hope in this world. Let's pray. Father, today we come to this table of bread and wine, an act of mercy, an act of compassion, an act of sacrifice, but not a meaningless act or just a historical act, but an act that that God is, is proven, is validated, is stamped as true by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so today, God, we come to this table and we come for hope. We, we come uh, with gratefulness. We come announcing and celebrating and worshiping that death has lost its sting. That there are moments that we grieve and we lament, but we do so with with great hope. And so we come today, God, asking you to meet us in that resurrection hope. In the name of the risen and reigning Christ, we pray. Amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you are interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.imagodaycommunity.com.